I feel like I was hearing a dog bark somewhere. Was that, were other people hearing that? Mm-mm. That's so interesting. Mm, your spidey sense. There's a dog <laughs> barking in my mind. <laughs> oh boy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to season three of the Compact Nation podcast. We are back with our second episode of the season, and this episode is one of our longer form interviews that you may be familiar with from last season. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, in our last episode, we sort of introduced our new co-host, but she wasn't able to be with us. So this week, we get the chance to truly introduce introduce and get to know our new co-host, Marisol Morales. Marisol, welcome. Thank you, Emily. Glad to be here. Um, Have you done a podcast before? I kind of did. Uh, I was, uh, I guess, guest uh, co-host for one of them, which was my first time. It was fun and uh, very different from anything I've done before, but exciting and like uh, the learning opportunity that it provides. So we kind of talked a little bit about you in your absence last week, which I'm sure feels great to hear. It was all positive, though. <laughs> I promise. But why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit more about you, your role in the Compact Nation, that kind of thing. Um, so I am... Um, New to uh, Compact, I started in February as the Vice President for Network Leadership. Um, Prior to that, I was um, the Founding Director of the Office of Civic and Community Engagement at the University of Laverne. I did that role for five years. And prior to that, I was the Associate Director of the Stain Center for Community-Based Service Learning at DePaul University. But really where I got my start in this work was as a student and uh, I was a student at DePaul and just was introduced to community engagement work through an ethnic studies course and got the opportunity to work uh, for a community organization and host service learners and students in the community. And um, that lens really frames how I do the work um, in my new role too. Exciting. So why did you want to be a part of this podcast? What are you excited about? What do you, what do you, Andrew what can told we me I needed to. Well, we, well, okay. <laughs> so you have to, to keep your, that's absolutely. Fair. That was one of the requirements. No. Oh, all right. Well, that's not as fun. I, I think <laughs> any, anybody who knows me knows just how realistic that is. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. Um, you're just really scary. Uh, what, but what can we expect? from you as a guest host, or not a guest host, a real host, a co-host? I'm official. Uh, I think you can expect uh, probably what I also bring to to the compact, like a critical lens to um, this work and uh, being able to really think about how the intersections and intersectionality plays a role in the work that we do. And then particularly in the podcast, in the type of uh, shows that we have and the questions that, that we ask. Um, I think also uh, I bring some fun. So well, we have desperately needed that. I mean, I'm not fun and Andrew is really not fun. That, no, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, I'm glad it's working. You know what I mean? So, uh, 
Uh, no, but I will attest that Marisol brings just exactly what she said. So I'm just repeating it, but um, a great kind of critical perspective uh, mixed with fun. Actually, I think that's sort of the secret sauce. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll get some of that going. Yeah, because just a critical perspective would, you know, not be that fun. It, it could get old. It could get old. <laughs> Never. I'm just kidding. We always welcome that. Um, so... As we mentioned, every other episode, we will the three of us will be doing some fun segments. We debuted those last time, and so um, hopefully you're digging them and ready for them next time. But in the intervening episodes, we'll have longer interviews with, with people from the field and kind of continue that tradition of bringing you different voices and perspectives and ideas um, through those longer interviews. And Andrew, Marisol, and myself will kind of take turns doing those interviews and then talking about them. So that's what we're going to do today. And I'm going to turn it over to Andrew to tell us a little bit more about his interviewee for this week. I would be glad to do that. So I interviewed Mike Caulfield, and Mike is director of blended and networked learning at Washington State University, Vancouver. He also leads the digital polarization initiative of the American Democracy Project at ASCU, the American Association of State Colleges and Universities. And Mike has been an ed tech guy for, I think, more than 20 years now. And he's been involved in lots of different projects. As you'll hear, he has gotten deeply interested in the question of how students gather information online, how that's connected to the state of our uh, civil uh, life, our civic life, the sort of possibility or not of civil discourse and of just people having the same basic understanding of facts out there to start conversations. Um, And, you know, one thing I wanted to say about Mike, I think he's a great example of the kinds of uh, what, what emerges and what is supported at institutions that are deeply engaged in the kind of work that we support. The president at WSU Vancouver, Mel Netzhammer, has been a real advocate for the public role of higher education. Um, I got to participate in a dialogue facilitated by uh, Carolyn Long, who's on the faculty in political science at WSU Vancouver. They've just been able to cultivate and support a, a range of people doing work that brings benefits way beyond the campus to the local community and nationally. And Mike, uh, he exemplifies that in the work that he's doing. So um, you can, so I encourage you to listen to the interview. We can mention this later and put it in the show notes. He also blogs at hapgood.us where he discusses a lot of his work. Um, But yeah, let's go to the interview. Mike Caulfield, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. It's good to be here. Mike, as a starting point, what is the question that you are seeking to answer through the research you're doing now? So my primary concern is how do we teach online media literacy in a way that ultimately changes students' behavior uh, and helps them to discern the true from the false, from everything in between, uh, quickly in a way that they'll practice once they get out of the classroom. And why do you, kind of in the big picture sense, why why is that question important? What's at stake for you in this kind of work? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which misinformation and disinformation has downstream effects. And some of them are, are political. 
uh, obviously, not only in who you vote for, that's a, you know, that's a piece of it, but broadly misinformation, if students don't feel they can navigate what's true and false, it builds a sort of cynicism, uh, which is not good uh, in a democracy. Cynicism is a really much more of a building block for authoritarian politics than for democratic politics. Uh, the, the second reason is there are sometimes really direct consequences of misinformation. When you look at things like medical misinformation, um, medical misinformation kills people. It kills people, it kills people every year. Climate disinformation uh, may have just catastrophic uh, effects uh, on the planet as a whole. And so both these things, first, the cynical environment that misinformation and disinformation creates and the effects of that on democracy and specific effects on particular policy uh, areas um, are, are immensely concerning to me. And how did, how did you come to be studying this question? So uh, kind of an interesting story. Um, I was working in digital literacy in, in education um, and at the same time, at night, I was a political blogger in 2006, an anonymous uh, political political blogger, and, and that anonymity crumbled when the policy director of my House representative posed as a Democrat and posted uh, posted uh, on my blog these these various sort of we, we call it concern trolling. They pretend, well, you know, I'm a good Democrat, but really we should be fighting. Joe Lieberman in Connecticut, he's the real enemy. Uh, and, and so that kind of blew up and I, my, my name became public and uh, I was actually worried for a bit uh, about that. But one thing that came out of that was that uh, my provost at the time said, hey, you know, you're interested in education and digital literacy and, you know, you, you obviously have some area in this sort of civic uh, participation around these things, maybe we should start thinking about how these two things intersect and looking at uh, what we can um, what we can teach students. What do students have to know if they're going to participate, you know, in, in a civic culture that is increasingly uh, online? Um, you know, and, and, and so, so that became the building blocks for some outcomes uh, that we developed uh, at Keene State College. Um, around uh, critical consumption, collaboration, how do you collaborate online, participation, which is uh, different from collaboration. And those three sort of legs of the stool um, formed our digital literacy outcomes. But the critical consumption piece of it turned out to be the one that was in some ways the most difficult and I think in some ways the most counterintuitive. This is a side observation. Uh, I'm sure many provosts do great work every single day, but that's the first time I've ever heard anybody tell a story about a provost that's really positive. And it's just about how, you know, the intervention of the provost in their career really helped and made a great difference. So I think that's a, a shout out to provosts everywhere. That happens. Well, I, we just don't hear about it. If I could follow up on that, I, I just want to say that at that time, uh, it was it was a big deal because at that time, I think like a lot of people, I just thought, well, these two parts of my life are completely separate. And, and his point was, yeah, you know, you do have to keep your politics very separate from your work, right? But there's a bigger story here. There's a bigger story about everybody's ability to participate. And, and he saw that, I think, at a point where I was too nervous about it to see it. 
Yeah, I think that's actually, that is a really great point that, that you just articulated. And I think it is for many of us who do this work of all sorts of ways of engaging students in the wider world. We are often motivated by a real concern about the wider world and then thinking about those ethical distinctions between what are the things I care about and what are the things that are appropriately part of my work and that it's, you know, legitimate for me to engage students in. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm interested that that's kind of a starting point for you about, about this. So if we jump into just some of the practicalities of what you're learning and also what you're learning about what works and what doesn't work. You know, so I saw you posted recently on your blog an example that I thought was a great one. I think many people will have seen this about that story that has circulated about allegedly a guy burning his Nikes and they're in protest of the Colin Kaepernick ad for Nike and inadvertently burning down his house. And so you kind of uh, broke that down both from the perspective of those you kind of disagree with about how to teach this kind of media literacy and then also how it works from your perspective. So maybe if you could start by telling us how would other folks who are not you uh, teach <laughs> okay. students to avoid that and what, and what do you see as the problems with that approach? Yeah, I can do it even better. I can tell you how I used to do it, which is, is really what still generally happens. Uh, you know, the, the traditional way to do this is to give students a list of what we think of as signals within a document of its potential credibility. And so you've seen these uh, lists uh, around before. Uh, there's one called CRAP. There's one called RADCAB. Um, there's, a, there's a new one that is, is somewhat better, um, but uh, still uses essentially the same process called ESCAPE. What these lists are, they're a list of qualities within the document. So is it currency? Is the document current? Is it, is it relevant? Relevant. Uh, you look for things like the professionalness of the document, right? Are there spelling errors? Are there typos? Are there non-native uh, errors in the way that it's, it's phrased? You look at things like the URL. Does is it .com? Is it .org? And you kind of try to process all these signals. Uh, the look, the layout, the feel, the rhetoric, the, the URL, what the about page says, all these signals and say, okay, is this is this real or fake? It's, it's, what, it's what we would call a recognition or representativeness heuristic. And so like in that case, the article as it was presented and circulated was presented as if it were a USA Today story. And you're saying all these different signals by that approach you're describing, the checklist approach, you, you run down this list and you would see all these different signals that say, hey, that's probably not actually a USA yeah, Today story. Yeah, so the idea would be that you would be able to do that, yeah. And, and, and if you look at that particular example, you'll find that there are a couple small tells in there, like the word kerosene is capitalized, which is not something we do uh, in the English language, or at least we haven't done it since the 1930s or so. Um, you know, there's maybe a, a one or two other uh, issues there that might uh, point the way. Everything else seems pretty solid. Uh, but that USA Today article shows one of the issues with all of these surface features, using these surface features for what we would call a representativeness heuristic. And uh, a heuristic is just a rule of thumb, a quick way of making decisions. So representativeness heuristics look and say, hey, does this thing look more or like other things of a certain class? You know, and so we go through this list uh, and we, we come up with that. The first problem is, is the one that the, the so-called USA Today article shows, which is that these are signals that are relatively easy to counterfeit on the web, right? It's relatively difficult to counterfeit 
these signals in like a book length treatment of something that's going to get to your library, <laughs> you know, um, that takes a lot of money. But, you know, on the, on the internet, it's, it's not so expensive. People can counterfeit those. That's the first problem. The second problem is it's just a wide array of signals. And so how do you actually balance this out? There's a typo in the thing, but it's laid out and it's, you know, the person's name has MD after it. And like, how do you how do you take all of these and sort of do the mental calculus required to weight each thing uh, the way that you should? And, and the answer is you're not going to be able to because that sort of weighting algorithm in your brain where you're going to weight all these different qualities and say, well, it's good on this, but it's bad on this. That's going to be so prone to your individual bias, your first impression of what that article is, that it's going to be pretty close to useless. So in other words, if I'm already inclined to think that the kinds of people who don't like the Colin Kaepernick ad are kind of morons who would inadvertently burn down their own house, then in the the judgment call I have to make about looking at all these factors, do I think this is real or fake? I'm more inclined to think, no, this is probably a real story because it kind of comports with my pre-existing view of the world. Exactly. And I mean, if you want to think about an analogy, imagine that I have a job candidate uh, coming, right? And, uh, you know, I tell one group of people before they arrive, I tell them, you know, this guy that is, is, is coming, he was fired from his last job uh, because he always lies. And, you know, this guy comes in and does an interview. He does the same interview with a bunch of people. But before he comes in, I tell them, you know, they were desperate to keep this guy at his last job because he's just famous for telling the truth. Everyone's going to see the surface features. Everyone's going to see what that person does, but they're going to pick up on different things, right? And, and in picking up on different things, they're going to weight them differently. And they're going to look at the same sort of stimulus and come to two completely different ideas. And the reason why is that is something I would call density, right? There's so many signals you could pick out in, a, in the space of an interview or looking at an article that the choice of what you decide to focus on is going to really influence the result. So kind of to, to this point, I think we're learning from your, your perspective and, and your research findings, that kind of checklist approach as a way of teaching students is not especially effective because it just leaves too much space for judgment and the, your pre-existing biases. And so, it, you know, your, your output, it's a kind of garbage in, garbage out problem that whatever your pre-existing views were are going to end up being expressed. You're just going to kind of pick out the checklist features that confirm your biases, or at least in the main, people are going to skew that way. Yeah, maybe the simplest way to see it is that it doesn't actually reduce the cognitive overload. And so since your, your method doesn't reduce the cognitive overload, um, you're going to have to use something else to do it. And you can use a variety of things to reduce cognitive overload, but one of the easiest ways to reduce cognitive overload is, is bias or tribalism uh, or confirmation bias or all these other things. So you fall back on some other tool to actually reduce the bias since your, your strategy is not actually reducing the, the overload. Okay, so uh, so what's the right thing to do? What what are the <laughs> strategies you have to reduce the cognitive overload? So if you take, for example, that USA Today piece, that fake USA Today piece on the the, the shoes burning down the house, what what would you teach students to do as they approach that story? Yeah, so so a quick heuristic on um, breaking news, right, or or new news, is that when news breaks. 
it's covered by usually more than one source, right? And it's usually covered by news sources. And so uh, on that particular one, the easiest way is to take some search terms, Nike burns house down, something like that, select that, and throw that into Google News. Now, if this is a real story, you should see that it's being covered. And if it's not, then you won't see it being covered. Or maybe you'll see a Snopes article up at the top there, but not the article that, uh, that you're, you're looking at. In, in, in this case, if you do do that, if you just search Google News and see, hey, is this being widely reported? We call this check for other coverage. Uh, if this is being widely reported, you should, you should see it. And that's a simple heuristic in the sense that the outcome of that is either a yes or a no right? I mean, either there's some coverage there or there's not some coverage there. And if there's not any coverage there, there's no way that you can kind of jujitsu your bias into saying there's coverage there. And if, if they're, you know, vice versa, it's not always the end of the story. I mean, certainly there are some stories that might not show up in there. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to make a, a quick and dirty cut first pass at this issue to say, hey, is this going to be a problem? Is this something I have to look into more deeply? Or is this something that I can take on face value? So you, that's one kind of habit you would suggest cultivating in students is that yeah. habit of check for coverage. What what are some of the other habits that are cultivatable in students, if that's a word, uh, and and that help them start to sort out what's real from fake? Yeah. So uh, find the original is one of our others. Uh, find the original is based on the premise that in general, as something sort of moves through the web, it becomes, you know, uh, more and more detached from the original reporting. This isn't always true, but it's, it's generally true. So one thing you'll find, for example, in either side of the sort of extremist blogosphere is that there's not actually any original reporting, uh, you know, at the very, very uh, poles of the, of the blogosphere. What there is is people taking a particular news story pulling a couple elements out, removing the nuance, and doing what we call in propaganda, uh, sharpening and leveling it, right? This is old 1940s propaganda studies stuff. You know, sharpening is where we uh, maybe add or emphasize details that didn't really exist. Like we, we suddenly make the person that was attacked a, uh, a veteran or something, right? You know, leveling is where we remove any detail that would add some nuance to, to the story, right? Uh, and so sharpening and leveling, very old uh, propaganda techniques. If you go to the story that that post is derived from, you'll see it before it was sharpened and leveled. Same thing with photographs. A lot of times photographs that we see are real, but they're taken out of the initial context, right? The initial context in which that photograph was uh, provided has been removed, it's been sharpened, level. Finding the original can usually get you a more nuanced, complete, uh, and knowledgeable story than, than looking at the reporting of re-reporting of a blog post of a press release of something that was sent out three weeks ago. Okay, so we've got look for coverage. We've got find the original. Are there other, like if we're building- Yeah, our this final list, one. There? So we, all, we have three big buckets and we have a bunch of smaller techniques that are associated with how to- to do that. Our final one is, is uh, investigate the source, right? In cases where it's not a breaking event or it's not based on some other reporting, what we want to know is, is what is the reputation of the source and what is their agenda? Do they have conflict of interest? Those sorts of things. And so when you come to a page and it's from a, a parent think tank that you're not aware of, it's a good thing to go and figure out 
you know, is this a free market think tank? Is this a progressive think tank? Just to kind of uh, arrange yourself in, you know, the, the what sort of discourse space does this thing come out of? And it's not to say that that's the end of the story, you know, that, oh, this is from there, I'm not reading it. But, you know, certainly if you end up on a, I'll give you an example that, that we often use in the, in the classes. There's a, there's a site called the American College of Pediatricians. And it, it looks like and presents itself as if it is a broad professional organization for pediatricians in the U.S. It's something like uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. But, but if you actually go and you look and you see what it is, it's, it's, it's a really a single issue advocacy group that argues uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, policy in healthcare and psychological care. And it argues actually some rather extremist positions, and we won't necessarily go into what those are. But the main question for the students isn't just, you know, whether it's hateful or not hateful, but the fact is, if you read something from that thinking, hey, this is a research group that is broadly, you know, with broad participation across America. And then you find out, no, it's actually got like two full-time employees uh, in a budget of, you know, 70 or 80,000. And it primarily puts out press releases that try to fool people. Like those are two different organizations and how you read what they're presenting is going to be quite different. And so we, we, we encourage students to investigate the source before they even start reading so that they can situate what they're about to read in a broader discourse. And so before we turn to, because you referred to your class, and I want to get into the context in which you're kind of testing these ideas, but before we do that, this, I could imagine somebody hearing what you're saying and saying, that all sounds really nice. It also sounds very time consuming, like, gosh, investigating sources, isn't that much harder than a checklist? So well, tell, tell us your thoughts okay. about that. Yeah, no, we, we actually get most of these techniques and uh, down to, I mean, 60 seconds, 90 seconds at the, 90 seconds maybe at the, the further edges of it. Uh, and we do this and we, we've done this with students and we, we can show that this can be done. So for example, check for other coverage is selecting some text in an article that is the subject of the article, right clicking, going to Google, hitting that news tab, and taking a look. And you can literally do that uh, in 10 seconds. Now, depending what you find there, there may be some sorting. But for 80% of the stuff, uh, if it's a really big breaking story, if it's Manafort just got indicted and you're wondering, uh, is that true? You get to that Google News page and, and you already know. This is a big breaking story. It's being broadly covered. Uh, if it is the Nike story, you already know immediately there is nothing there is nothing there for a supposedly local story with uh, USA Today reporting it. Um, some things take a little bit deeper. With, with Investigate the Source, we just ask students to start at Wikipedia and just at the top of any description of any organization on Wikipedia is a like a three to four sentence paragraph that summarizes what it's about. At the very least, that classifies it into a, a think tank, an advocacy group, uh, a research organization, uh, it may tell you other things about their uh, particular, particular leaning and, uh, and agenda. And of course, all of these, you can go deeper if you have problems. The idea of our techniques, though, is that for the majority of stuff, you know, for 80% of stuff, uh, you get a quick answer. And then for 20% of stuff, you see uh, relatively conflicting signals, uh, which means that you may have to dig a little bit deeper. 
So, so tell me about how you have been testing this out in practice. Where, where are you doing this? Who are these students? What's going on with that? So we've been testing this out in, in classrooms now for over a year. We've done it both in intro classes, uh, students in, you know, those basic freshman writing classes that students get, uh, and in some capstone classes, particularly around science. uh, Some of the sciences have capstone classes that include uh, a science communication outcome, and so we look at clickbait science and things like that. Over time, we've honed uh, what we do, uh, but the the basic structure has remained the same. Uh, We have a bunch of prompts. If you go to fourmoves.blog, you'll see the sorts of prompts we use. We get, I think, over 140 of them on there. We throw up the prompts. We have students actively on their own computers uh, see if they can find some quick answers to some questions. And then, uh, depending on the subject, we might go a little deeper into it. We might say, for example, if something that is false is also kind of, I don't know, piggybacking on some uh, you know, racist stereotypes or distrust of medical institutions. We might talk about some of these broader structural, uh, structural issues. But the key piece is each one of these starts with a quick investigation of the students, uh, where we try to get uh, all the students to, uh, you know, just kind of make a ruling on it based on what they can find out in uh, 90 seconds. And do you see the techniques that you're developing and testing in these settings as the sort of thing that should constitute a class of its own on media literacy, et cetera? Are these things that you see as uh, infusible into other kinds of courses? How do you see this kind of in the best case scenario being taught to students? Yeah, in the best case scenario, so I, I would like to see them infused into other classes, but I think my my dream right now, we've generally done uh, two to three week interventions, like in a, in a class, we'll do a two to three week module. And we've seen, we've seen benefits, you know, uh, from that. What I would like to see is I would like to see a class that takes these techniques and then places them in a class that actually uh, applies these techniques while teaching students about the broader media and research uh, ecosystem, right? So the, the place where we could do a lot better uh, if we had a, a full class is we could, A, we could practice these techniques uh, more. But as we've gone out and done this, we've seen, oh, you know, students don't know what a think tank is. Oh, you know, students don't know what a, a journal impact factor is. Thinking about the questions that come up when students try to do this, where they don't have the vocabulary or the understanding of the larger ecosystem, and then addressing that in modules that might be about medical misinformation, that might be about uh, you know the rise of think tanks uh, in America, that, that give them and, and sort of situate them you know in these different domains. When you think about the scale of the problem that we now face based on, you know, I think we could point to all sorts of different data about the degree to which various sort of false stories have been believed, the degree to which people just hold false views about a whole bunch of important issues, et cetera. Do you feel like kind of one class at a time at the college level is getting at it? Like, what are your thoughts about what else needs to happen or the scale this needs to happen in colleges and universities? Well, the big thing we need, and this is the hardest nut to crack, we need educators educated about, uh, you know, this way of approaching 
uh, information. Uh, educators really come out of a print-based culture which has different heuristics than the web-based uh, culture. Some stuff applies, but uh, for this sort of quick filtering and sorting, it's not really a corollary in print culture, right? And so they, they don't have those skills. Until they have those skills, it's going to be difficult because what you actually need is you need the deep dive, right? But you also need uh, students to see these skills uh, reinforced, um, you know, throughout their career. And I, I think of it in terms, too, of social enforcement, right? Ultimately, when we think about how we get behavior to change, we come up with uh, something we expect people to do, right? You know, like throw your litter in a trash can. And then, you know, we as a society expect people to do it. And when people don't do it, we say, hey, you know what? You, you kind of failed here, right? You, you, you didn't throw, throw your trash into the garbage can. And those two pieces are really important. One is that there are sort of clear remedies, right? There are clear social rules and you know how to obey them. They can't be fuzzy or complex like, you can have a social rule that says, hey, before you share something, you should always understand what the organization you're sharing from is, right? That's a simple rule. Um, and then if we show people how to do that, when people don't do that, we can say, hey, you know, this is, this is uncool. But we can't do that unless uh, people like teachers um, know what those rules are, know the techniques associated with them, and reinforce them and say, hey, I noticed that you shared this in your thing. Do you know what this organization is and did you do the quick chat? So for faculty members who, or other staff members, administrators, folks on campuses, or other listeners who just care about this stuff, what are some good ways for them to learn more about what you've learned so far and how they can put it into practice? This is a number of ways. Uh, first, the Stanford History Education Group has a bunch of materials on their site. Their uh, nickname is SHIG. Uh, and those are a bunch of curricular materials. They're really devised mostly for uh, the K-12 environment, but a lot of them are, are very portable. Uh, we have a series of videos that I made uh, with a group called Civics in Canada, four short videos. Uh, I think they're the clearest and most concise presentation of this stuff to date. Uh, they're part of the Civics Newswise project, and they're each about three minutes, right? So about 12 minutes of, of viewing if you want to expose your students to that. And then uh, for people that are doing a deeper dive, there is this book, uh, Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers. I will say that I... I wrote that in a few weeks uh, over 2016 Christmas break. We've learned a lot since it. Uh, since then. I haven't had a chance to get back to it. It's still a really, really good uh, introduction uh, into these ideas, uh, and we'll show you how some of these strategies play out in practice. The, the, the thing that we've honed since that book is um, we've just made the techniques simpler and simpler and simpler. That's what happens when you teach. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's hopefully what happens when you teach, right? Well, Mike, we will put links to those things uh, in the show notes for this episode so people can go check that out on compact.org. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I think the work is incredibly important. And uh, I hope that people really start to learn about what you're learning and put this into practice. So thanks again for being with us. Thanks again. All right, everybody, welcome back. Um, really interesting 
interview, very timely and connected to our last discussion about politics, obviously. I was really interested in kind of um, what he was saying about the need to change behavior, because I think that might seem obvious, but really, it really challenging to do. And so thinking about not just delivering information, not just giving students new ideas, but how do you actually get them to change behavior? Um, And when I was uh, reading up more about him, I found an infographic they have about that. And really this idea of checking your emotions first, like of that being the habit you get into when you find information online is, you know, does it stir up an emotion in you, whether that's indignation or anger or whatever the case may be. And if it does, that should be your cue to investigate even further instead of reacting with a comment or sharing it or that kind of thing. And that resonated with me a lot. Like I think I'm a pretty savvy consumer of information, but I get caught in that trap. I think we all do. And that's, that to me seems like a really helpful cue and way of getting in the habit. Yeah, I mean, I would say I, I really enjoyed the the interview and made me think of a number of different things. Um, when he pointed out that cynicism isn't good for democracy, and so thinking about the particular time that we're in, and mm-hmm. it coincides with actually the a report that uh, NPR did with Marist College um, around uh, the perception of voters and democracy and, you know, seeing particularly with communities of color, some of the cynicism or the idea of elections not being fair and how that builds that cynicism. Yeah, yeah I just saw that one today. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that piece is sort of the trappings of the, you know, fake news, the inability to have that um, competency around being able to like critically consume this digital media. And then again, that idea of critical consumption and thinking about that in a number of different ways from the ideas of the civil rights movement or the great boycotts with the farm workers and being conscious consumers of not only sort of the products that we buy, but the products that are available for us online and how we continue to perpetuate that um, sort of breakdown in our democracy by not having that kind of critical view on the way we consume media. Yeah, that just, I mean, that got my brain going about different ways to incorporate that into a course. And it made me wish I was teaching right now because, you know, I've learned lots of courses in the past, had students talk about current events and bring articles and things like that to class. It would just be such a great exercise to do that, but add this layer of digital literacy of really asking then, What's the source of that? How do you know that's a good source? Um, Those kinds of things. Kind of just taking it to another level. Yeah, and thinking about how our our school systems need to change their curriculum, right? I'm thinking about like GE, you know, where is digital literacy in most of our universities' general ed requirements? Or, you know, even thinking about how we uh, instill this in some of the... um, social studies courses that kids in grammar school and high school are taking and that it's really a more of a necessary skill now than, than ever before. One of the things that really struck me about, uh, about that approach is that it's a lot like what anybody who goes to graduate school learns to do, right. With any, any kind of claim that you encounter is work it backwards, right. Find what is the original, 
uh, c- contention grounded in, and then to the extent you can, what were the methods that were used to actually gather the information on which the original claim was grounded? And it used to be incredibly laborious work because it involved one print publication, then chasing down another print publication, and then another print, you know, for who knows how far back. And now you can do it if you know a few techniques incredibly quickly, but we don't always teach people to do it. And one of the things I found, so a different time that I spoke with Mike when I first learned about his work, one of the things he said to me that I don't think he said in this interview was that in some ways what he's teaching is anti-critical thinking, that a critical thinking approach has you ask yourself, how plausible is this claim? And the idea is that somehow all of us have enough capacity for reason that we will recognize things as not plausible. But his point is, that's essentially inviting your own biases to kick in. Like to some people, it does seem plausible that Barack Obama is a Muslim sent here to over to, right? And if you already think that, then particular, you know, uh, things that are supposed to be evidence of that, whatever, they, they just, they seem plausible to you. And if, on the other hand, you say, where is this coming from? That's something different. And the same is true with things that people to the left find plausible, right? Whoever we are, we have a set of biases. If we just ask ourselves how true something seems, we're, we're essentially tripping those instead of like getting around them by getting into these habits or the, you know, developing these habits. So if we think what we need is some level of protection against fake news, you know, I think his point is it's a lot better to rely on a set of habits than it is to rely on your internal capacity for reason. Right. Yeah. And I think partially to that point, it's because and this is why no one should feel guilty or bad about that. It's designed to do that. I mean, people putting some of these different pieces of misinformation out there are designing them in such a way that they are meant to bypass all your critical filters and work against even a solid education. So I think part of it is just recognizing, especially in the digital age, and I appreciated so much how he said that the way you would do this in a paper world just doesn't translate. It's a whole different thing. And I think that's really important to recognize. Like we're just talking about a whole new ball game where we all need evolving skills all the time. And so thinking about how do you hone those skills and work on that all the time, because nobody, whatever level of education is completely unsusceptible to this. You know, it's again, it's like a virus that's evolving and changing constantly to attack our defenses and get past any filters we would have. And and I think that that was a change in thinking for me. It's just like a way you've got to work on it all the time, exercise it. Yeah, it reminds me of that book, uh, Blind Spot, uh, about hidden biases. And like, the idea is that that's what it's meant to do is exploit those biases that we have to either continue to support our particular uh, point of view, but not give us enough space to like even hear the other side, right? Um, and so I think that that's um, the piece and the idea of reinforcing stereotypes and in some ways the way that even within the field of service learning, like if we're not in- engaging in some critical pedagogy of asking our students to ask these questions about um, things that we can also reinforce stereotypes in that way. 
What I I was still um, left, I think, wanting even more practical strategies for how we can be thinking about this, you know, across everything that we're doing, how do we really embed different ways of thinking about this. And I think a big challenge is just how much bias there even is in what is considered a credible source of information. So when, you know, there's large groups of people who don't think major news outlets are credible sources of information any longer, um, when elected officials may or may not be credible sources of information, it does feel like it gets increasingly tricky. I totally agree. I think there are, and of course, as like with other things, some of this has been intentionally done uh, for precisely the reason Mike was talking about, which is that cynicism tends to wreak havoc on existing institutions. I've become very interested in this um, experiment called Civil, which is an experimental platform for supporting high quality journalism. And part of the way it's built, it's governed by um, consumers of the content. They right now have like 40 newsrooms that are being supported on the platform. It's a whole complicated story where they have a cryptocurrency that you need to buy in order to get votes on the platform, but it's not being sold. The, the point of it is it's not an investment currency. It's just to sort of get you in on getting to make decisions about this. But the whole point of it is they have very well publicized journalistic standards and the community of readers, listeners, etc., gets to decide whether particular outlets are actually following those standards. And if not, they essentially vote them off the island. So this thing is brand new. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm very interested in it. But it's attempting to circumvent this idea of saying, you know, historically, we just took it, some authorities word for it, that particular outlets were authoritative and there was relative consensus around it. So it kind of worked, even though people understood that all sorts of stories never really got covered, right? Like the AIDS crisis was not covered in its early years because the big media organizations did not see it as significant. So, but now the idea is to say, once that consensus is broken down, what can you do? And this one experiment is attempting to say, what if we build a more democratic way with a small d of getting actual consumers to say, do we think these transparent standards are being followed? But I think it's a huge problem that is not going to be solved by one experiment, but maybe tons of experiments at finding ways to rebuild some shared trust in platforms. And I really do think without it, we are in serious long-term trouble. That makes me think, Andrew, as I was um, sort of listening to the interview and uh, like the techniques that he identified as like the check for coverage and how in some ways that's good, but in other ways, particular communities have been excluded from reporting being done, right, um, on issues in their, those communities. So if nobody's covering it, like you just mentioned with, with the AIDS crisis, like that as a technique could, right. you know, be a little parallel. Um, you know, so thinking about even that, uh, you know, who's, who's going to be able to get into those, those spaces? Are they taking into account uh, demographics and the way that race and economics play a role in how uh, particular communities are, are covered or issues are covered. Um, so I think there's a lot more questions that we have to, have to ask, but I think it's a good starting point in terms of, um, you know, building the skills necessary to really um, 
engage in this media in a in a new way that's that's critical, but also um, that allows us the the space to really take ownership again um, of what we're consuming. And it makes me wonder, I think the eternal question in my head right now is just, is any of this compatible with social media? Like, can it be recovered at all? Because when I think about, you know, there's all the obvious um, Facebook issues that have been well publicized. Twitter's a platform that I enjoy a lot more. But at the same time, cynicism is pretty much the coin of the realm. So can social media play a positive role in our democracy or is that just not possible? Probably not possible yet. You know, I mean, like, I actually do think that. I mean, I think, you know, just we're seeing these very public struggles of these companies with how to deal with the most egregious, you know, like, uh, there is Alex Jones very actively spreading what everybody knows are lies and uh, social media platforms can barely get their act together to deal with him. They finally have in a limited way, you know, after years of his having a platform that has been massively destructive, uh, supported by these, uh, you know, these, these social media platforms. That's like one, one abusive user who they are getting under control. Uh, and I, re- I do think it's like we can't rely on those companies uh, to, to solve this problem for us. You know, like it is a problem that is a public problem and it's going to take public action. Uh, and some of that is by our educational institutions. Like that is one piece of this, but it's obviously not the whole story. Yeah, but they also have a, a role to play in, in how they, uh, in how they allow particular content to, to, you know, sort of be on, on their platform. So I wouldn't take away any responsibility for, for, from them. I think it's, it's, you know, something that's joint. Yes, it's on the consumer, but it's, it's also the idea, like they're creating the space for this to happen. There's some sort of, if they can put an, have an algorithm to show us what to buy, they can, you know, create something to be able to filter out what's, what's obviously fake. Oh, let me let me just say what I meant. I meant I don't think we can expect a profit making company without regulatory action through public institutions. I'm not saying they couldn't do it. I'm just saying I don't think they will when they're making money hand over fist. Uh, They just don't have the motivation. They assume in most cases these complaints will pass. People will move on to something else. And that's what I'm saying. I think we need not as consumers, but as members of the public as citizens to organize, to insist that we not let our public square be governed by a small number of for-profit companies uh, who may or may not, in some of the persons of their CEOs, et cetera, have an interest in a good public discourse, whatever, but at the end of the day are driven by the interests of shareholders and profit. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I think it's up to each of us individually to... At the very least, like you were saying, Marisol, be critical consumers and in that have a code of your own conduct on social media, both what are the kinds of things that you want to be sharing? What do you want to add? But also, what are you looking for? What are you going to elevate? How are you going to evaluate things? I mean, I think this cynicism piece really struck me. And I think maybe it's just especially on Twitter, I guess, it just feels like cynicism is what gets rewarded 
um, on a daily basis. And so it's actually challenging to remind yourself to share things you are excited about (laughs) and not just hot takes about what sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That would be an interesting experiment. I mean, if you were to write up, like, here's my code of conduct on social media, what would that look like? I think that's an exercise that all podcast listeners should engage in. (laughs) Well, I'm going to now because I I don't have one, but just, I mean, it's been something I've been struggling with. You know, do I want to get off these platforms entirely? Can I afford to do that? What? what do I want to be contributing if I'm going to be on them? And I think it's hard to navigate and not just get sucked into, you know, responding, whatever the case may be. Yeah. I think in some ways it's reconstituting the public square so that it's, there's enough room for everybody and that uh, we put our, our listening skills, you know, back on and um, at least be able to hear one, one another in a way that we're, we haven't. And part of that is, right, having these techniques to be able to filter through some of the things that we're hearing. Should we wrap it up for today? I think we probably should. Okay. So as I mentioned, we'll be back next week with our episode of segments again. So you can look forward to some more decoding, de-jargoning, some bright spots, our own attempts to move past cynicism and look at the good things that are happening that actually are improving our democracy, um, despite the many things to the contrary of that. So thank you both for being my fearless host today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. Please, as we start season three, rate us and review us. Tell your friends get people involved. Let us know what you'd like to see. As always, you can email us at podcast.compact.org. You can find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod. And we hope to hear from you. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. The Compact Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, Communications Manager for Campus Compact. Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag on Compact Nation, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Or find us on and don't forget to rate us, review us, and tell your friends.